This morning we are continuing in Romans chapter 8, and we're going to start back at verse 16 and just go to the end. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. When 
Jesus broke the power of sin and death through his own death on the cross. He introduced a new era. The Old Testament refers to it as the latter days or the end times. And these were predicted all the way through the Old Testament scriptures, an era where bondage to sin has ceased for those who by the power of the Spirit have been enabled to keep the righteous requirement of God's law, albeit imperfectly. And those who have received this end-time gift of the Spirit are also assured of the resurrection which God promised to Israel throughout the Old Testament, and especially in Ezekiel 37, where the gift of God's Spirit and the resurrection are very closely intertwined. The church, as God's people, has now received these promises of Israel. Those who belong to Christ are adopted, God's sons, His children and heirs. And if the church has received the promises made to Israel, they now await the consummation of the promise of a new creation, which again was initially made to Israel. Israel was promised a a new creation, a new land. Abraham was promised to inherit the world. Of course, this new world has not yet arrived in its fullness. All creation groans as it awaits the revelation of God's children and the fulfillment of all that God has pledged in His covenant. And and believers, we also groan inwardly because we have not yet experienced the revealing of our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. But all of this groaning is suffused with hope. Because believers in Christ will surely inherit the promises made to Israel. Because the Spirit also groans with us, interceding for us to our Heavenly Father with perfect perpetual prayers offered on our behalf. This theme of hope then continues throughout the remainder of chapter 8, which my plan is to divide it into three more parts for our time frame. We'll see how it goes. And so this morning, we're looking specifically just at verses 18 through 27. Now, all of this good news comes directly on the heels of one of the harshest realities communicated in Romans, where in verses 16 and 17, Paul introduced a condition. The the condition is this, the spirit of adoption is ours, we are children of God and heirs with Christ provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The condition is a genuine one, but God will strengthen believers so that they will certainly fulfill the condition as the rest of Romans 8 promises and demonstrates. So in a chapter which communicates exuberant joy about the hope we have as believers, the prospect of suffering seems to dampen the hope. And so Paul, in the rest of Romans 8, explains why suffering furthers hope rather than suppressing it. The first and foundational way that suffering actually produces hope is verse 17, that if we know we are suffering with Christ, we are assured that we will be glorified with Him. 
This, this is a great help for our hope. We know that if we suffer with Christ, we have assurance that we will be glorified with Him. First Peter, Peter writes, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed." If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. And, and if we are assured of our hope because we share in Christ's sufferings, then our sufferings are diminished in comparison with the astounding weight of that hope. And this is where we begin in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now again, when Paul says for, it indicates that he's expanding on what he has just said about the relationship between our present suffering with Christ and our future glorification with Him. Those who would be glorified with Christ must also suffer with Him. For the original audience, suffer refers to a lot more than just physical pain or discomfort, but would relate directly to the aspect of honor and shame. In this culture, honor and shame were really important things. And physical suffering was felt more acutely as a, a shame on someone's life, that others would look down on them and think that they were not as valuable, not as spiritual, not as good if they were people who were sick and were suffering or impoverished. And so suffering has this acute relationship to honor and shame. And in this world, Christians will face humiliation and shame. Christians will not be embraced by the world around them if they truly live as followers of Christ. They will be reviled. But any humiliation Christians face in this life cannot begin to compare with the incredible honor and glory they will receive from God. Do you see how this is a, the two sides of this coin are, are suffering and glory or shame and honor? Every Christian will enjoy all of eternity in God's presence and will be rewarded for their faithful service to Jesus Christ in this world. And so we need not fear whatever backlash may come for openly being His ambassadors in this world because we know what God has in store for us. We are freed to live as people who have nothing to lose because we are fellow heirs with Christ. And when we grasp that truth, any suffering in this life becomes little more than a minor irritation. This is one of the reasons why suffering furthers hope. Because we, we know that no matter how severe our troubles in this life, our present sufferings are minimal in comparison to future glory. We know, 2 Corinthians 4.17, that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
Now, the, the glory is to be revealed to us does not capture the Greek precisely because the meaning of the text is not only that glory will be revealed to us or upon us, but that glory apprehends us and will be bestowed upon us. It's used in the same sort of sense as that wrath and judgment will be revealed to the wicked, Romans 2.5. And so, the same way that wrath and judgment are revealed in the sense that it is received and experienced, so is glory revealed to the righteous, is that they will receive and experience glory. Now, elsewhere, as in 1 Corinthians 15.43 and Philippians 3.21, Paul describes the resurrection body as involving glory. And that is certainly at play here, but there's also a connection to Adam's lost glory. The imago Dei, or the image of God, which is being restored to us by the Spirit gradually, 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we are being transformed into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. And so Philippians 3.20 and 21 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So the thesis of verse 18 is that present sufferings are inconsequential in light of certain future glory. We will have a new glorified body, and we will have restored to us the glory of humanity's creation, and even greater, that we will image God. And following this thesis, now verses 19 to 30 all support this thesis that present sufferings are inconsequential. Verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. While believers are now, presently, children of God, the full implication of our relationship with God has yet to be shown. And when our true identity is fully revealed, it will be because we finally see Him in all of His glory, then the process of being made like Him will be completed and we will share in His glory. 1 John 3.2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And so there's a both end. We are God's children now, but we have not yet seen the fullness of what it means to be the adopted children of God. Colossians 3.4 says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. The apostles use the words children and sons interchangeably, which helps to clearly communicate that all children of God are in view, both male and female, while also conveying the distinct benefits that were attached to sonship as only male children were considered to be heirs in some cultures. And so even women are sons in what Paul is saying here, heirs according to the promise. Firstborn sons is actually the correct terminology. Each of us are the one destined to inherit all of what God has granted. The world will treat us 
as misfits and losers. But a day is coming when we will be showcased as children of God. Every genuine child of God will be presented as God's son and a fellow heir with Christ. God, Paul wants to dazzle and excite us with the attractiveness and beauty of the future glory which awaits And he does this by personifying all of non-human creation, which all together awaits with eager longing what God is about to do in returning some part of humanity to its former and and even greater glory. This places humans in center stage for a moment, but not in an entirely positive way. Verse 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When when God created the earth and all that is in it, everything he said was very good, Genesis 1.31, but that changed when Adam and Eve sinned. Ever since then, because Adam and Eve were given dominion over the earth, they were given kingship, rulership over the earth, essentially. Ever since then, the creation has been subjected to death and decay. Subjected by whom? Well, God himself has done this in response to the sin of humanity. Genesis 3.17, cursed is the ground because of you. This has always blown my mind. The the serpent and the humans together conspire rebellion against God, and and the serpent comes up first, and God is, cursed are you. And then when he comes to Adam, he says, cursed is the ground because of you. God defers the curse. Now, not that humanity doesn't live under a curse, but he is not damned, he is not condemned, because God is going to do something in order to save his human creatures. This unprecedented mercy is shown to God's people. But Adam's sin brought all of creation under a curse. The ground itself was subjected through no fault of its own, that is, not willingly, Creation, having been subjected to futility, could no longer fulfill its intended purpose. Our sin spills over and adversely affects our subordinates. And so man was given dominion over the earth to dress the earth, to keep the earth, to till the earth, and to name the animals. And so he was established as the king of this environment. And when the king or the ruler falls, the effects of his sinfulness spill over and harm all of the subordinates of the king. The corruption of all other earthly creation is the direct result of the intentional sin of mankind and our corruption. And now there is much decay and trouble even within the order of nature. And for The most part, God richly cares for the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, but they also participate in calamities caused by humanity. Just think about what happens when the air, earth, and water are polluted or mismanaged and how this creates suffering for all forms of life. 
We have a, a little bunny at home, and it has a little hurt ear, and we just moved, and it's totally stressed out. And that little bunny is groaning, waiting for the recreation of all things. That little bunny is, is groaning and waiting for its, its suffering to end. I, that sounds silly, but it's true. All of these other things are, are the response or the result of human sin. But that is not the end of the story for creation. God subjected creation to futility with the sure knowledge that it would one day be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God's salvation plan is not only for individuals, but a redemption of all creation, freeing it from its bondage. Creation's freedom, though, will only come about when God's children have been glorified. Cranfield writes, and and you may have to focus here to understand the more difficult language, he writes this, we may think of the whole magnificent theater of the universe together with all its splendid properties and all the chorus of subhuman life created to glorify God but unable to do so fully so long as man, the chief actor in the drama of God's praise, fails to contribute his rational part. Let me break that down for you. Creation was designed, created to glorify God. And it is held back, it is, it is handicapped in that purpose so much as the, those who have dominion over the earth, the human creature is failing to glorify God with everything they do. And so creation personified is waiting expectantly for the revelation of God's sons in hope that it also will be liberated from corruption. The scripture promises a a new heaven and a new earth, a a cosmic transformation and, and renovation whereby the work of redemption affected by Christ will not only bring renewal, sanctification, and glorification to man, but also renewal, sanctification, and glorification to our natural world, our natural environment. Now, incidentally, the the solution to creation's problem is not, as in the New Age theories espoused by today's environmentalist movements, the removal of human influence, but for humanity to be restored to its original purpose, For us to be redeemed and to take our place at last as God's image bearers, dependent upon His wisdom to steward the environment that has been placed in our charge. So don't hear me echoing statements that you hear in the world that says, you know, the earth's a disaster and we've got to get rid of humans. Let's let's stop growing food. No, the, the solution is that humans need to operate as God has intended. And we can do that in part now. But this will be the case. This is something to look forward to, that we will have dominion over the earth restored to us. We will become the stewards of creation with all of God's wisdom and actually knowing how to do things. If you ever want want to uh, just see a train wreck of, of human management, look at the history of Yellowstone National Park, where every decision people made on how to preserve this beautiful nature reserve ended up causing more and more destruction. We, we don't have the wisdom that we need to do these things, but this is part of what will be restored. Creation will be restored even as humans are restored to their created purpose. 
Now, Paul goes on using poetic language in verse 22 and portrays creation in great agony because of its present inability to live out the purposes for which God created it. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So all creation groans together with believers, longing for and waiting for the final unveiling of the children of God, which will signal its restoration and renewal. And if non-human, but here personified, creation longs to experience it, so do believers long to experience the fulfillment of our hope, the redemption of our bodies. Many, Many Christians are almost surprised at this kind of statement because their lives in this world are, are good. They, they are happy and content, either because they have no solidarity in the sufferings of Christ, having almost entirely avoided persecution, or because they are affluent and comfortable and have failed to understand what their final adoption as sons will accomplish. If we're not eagerly waiting, longing with expectation, even painful waiting, it's because we have failed to recognize that a day is coming when we will share in Jesus' glory and be fully revealed as sons of God as we are fully conformed to Christ's image. Verse 23 reminds us that genuine Christians should be incredibly eager for the return of Christ and the final outcome of our adoption as God's children, where not only our soul, but also our bodies are going to be redeemed. Now, on the surface, we think of sickness and suffering. Those would end. We experience trials of many kinds and the enmity of the world. It'd be nice to have all those things come to an end. But even more troubling is that we continue to face temptation as long as we are living in these unredeemed physical bodies. We are presently freed from slavery to sin, its dominion, but we still currently experience our freedom imperfectly. Having now experienced a taste of what is to come, we long for the completion of what God has in store for His adopted children. We long to no longer be wrestling with sin in our daily lives, constantly even enticed by temptation. Even when I don't sin, I feel this grating on me when sin entices me. Like, why do I even want that? And so we long for the return of our Lord. We long for the redemption of our bodies. We're groaning with creation. Things are not as they should be. We long for the completion of what is already ours. And this is what the language of first fruits is meant to elicit. It reminds us that our present experience of the Holy Spirit is only an appetizer of what we will ultimately experience, the, the first pledge of blessings that are still to come. And just as the first fruits were actually the beginning of the harvest, so the Spirit within us is a genuine experience of the future age. 
So that Paul can refer to adoption for believers as both a past tense experience, verse 15, and a future event to be fully realized in verse 23. And so this, this fits Paul's already but not yet eschatology. Paul's view of how things are working out is that the blessings of the future age are already ours now, yet they become ours fully only at the day of redemption and resurrection. And so Paul will refer to being saved and, and your future salvation. He refers here to having been adopted as sons and that we will be adopted here in verse 23. And despite having the first fruits of the Spirit, we still suffer. We are promised to suffer, and sometimes grievously. So what saves us from despair? What is it that protects us from surrendering to the sorrows that beset us in this world? The saving factor for the Christian, which preserves us in the midst of our present circumstances, is our hope. And this is what Paul is driving at. This is what he's trying to increase in us as we listen. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. He uses the word hope here five times in, in these two sentences. This refers to the firm conviction or lack of doubt that belongs to all who have been saved. But the word hope also reminds us that we are looking forward to something. Something we have not yet experienced. Something we have not yet seen. And because we have not yet seen it, we are required to patiently wait for it in the midst of the challenges and trials of this life. And we, we continue to face trials of many kinds, times of weakness and exhaustion, times we are tempted to sin, and even times when we are tempted to despair. And sometimes our current situation will be so devastating that we are left perplexed. 2 Corinthians 4.8 We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Only in the context of our firm hope in what is to come will this guard us from despair. A solid hope that rests upon the promises of God which nothing can ever frustrate. When God says that something is going to happen in the future, it is going to happen. The hope of the Christian is strong enough to carry them through the present suffering and sorrow. In contrast to the cult of positivity which insists that believers should always have a positive attitude and confession, the Bible describes believers as those who have a view which encompasses both present and future realities. That is, we're meant to be honest people who have, have a realist view. But we have both the present reality and the future reality in mind. And so we're not supposed to be those who pretend that we're not sick and pretend that we're not sad, pretend that we're not grieving. We don't have to come into church today and always say we're doing really well. We can be those who tell the truth about the circumstance, as Paul does in 2 Corinthians. We are afflicted in every way, right? Believers are those who have both the present and future held in view, the truth of both. 
And, and while God certainly calls us to be content with what he provides us and provides for us in this life, and we're to avoid complaining or grumbling, we should never be content spiritually, nor should we ever feel totally at home in this world. We have bodies that are, are working worse and worse every day, or we're afflicted with disease and, and trials that we face because this world, 1 John 5, 19, is still under the control of the evil one. But the most difficult thing for Christians to patiently endure is that sins are continually tempting us and at times trip us up. And so it, it is both natural and even appropriate to groan as we eagerly wait for our bodies to be redeemed. Even as, at the same time, we rejoice in the sure knowledge that that day is coming. Impatience is a sin that afflicts us in, in both obvious and not so obvious ways. Some, of the, some serious distortions of the Christian truth are a direct result of people's impatience. For example, some go around teaching that God always wills healing and that Christians, if they are true believers, will never be sick. Well, this is a result of human impatience with present suffering as they try to claim for the present what God has promised for the future. We're taking what is future and saying, well, that has to be now as well. Well, that's not what the Bible promises. Another example is the idea of full sanctification, in this life, otherwise known as perfectionism, where people claim that they can or that we should have total victory over sin in this world. Now, we will certainly be glorified as God has promised, but in the meantime, we struggle with sin just as we struggle with sickness and death. It is impatience with the struggle that produces these wrong theologies. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 54. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. While as believers we hold on in hope, enduring the sufferings of this present age, we are not left alone. We have an even more powerful safeguard against despair, the intercession of the Holy Spirit on our behalf, verse 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Sometimes our circumstances are so hard, so perplexing, that we don't even have a clue how to pray or, or sometimes even have the strength to bring our needs to God. And such is our hope 
that in even these situations, we can rest assured that the Holy Spirit will help us in our weakness. At our deepest points of need, the Spirit is both perfectly able and perfectly willing to help us. You ever feel like you're just so down that you can't even call out for help? Do you ever feel like you're just an utter failure and there, there's no way you could even make a request to God? It is at that point that God is still carrying you in prayer. Now, some, some have suggested that Paul is referring here to speaking in tongues, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but this is impossible for a number of reasons. For one, Paul speaks of the Spirit's intercession for us, not of his inspiration of prayer in tongues by us. Similarly, he says that the Spirit's intercession is with groanings too deep for words. Literally, unspoken groans is the literal translation of this, which suggests that silent silent intercession, not something that's verbalized. But most importantly, though, this intercession is something which Paul says is happening for all the saints, which eliminates speaking in tongues, a gift which was not given to all believers according to 1 Corinthians 12.30. So we're not talking about some hyper-spiritual thing or some gift of the Spirit, but we're talking about something the Holy Spirit does on our behalf without our input, without our work. It is, again, God bringing us to salvation so that He gets all the credit alone. And it it is weakness in prayer that Paul zeroes in on, and the Spirit's help in prayer is the answer to our weakness, which is that we do not know adequately what to pray for, and we do not always adequately pray. We do not know what we should ask of God in prayer because we lack wisdom, and because we lack knowledge of the future and which things would ultimately work out for our good. You think of all the ways things have worked out in your life up to this point and the hard things you've gone through and and what benefit that's brought. Can you imagine? We don't know how we would pray for which difficult things should come to us next. I don't pray and ask God that I'll get sick or one of my kids will get sick or that we'll go through some sort of financial crisis, even though those things may be what's best for me. And so I don't know how to pray and tell God what he should do in the future. But the Holy Spirit does knows the will of God, and God knows the mind of the Spirit. The totality of God's will is hidden from us, but the Spirit fills this lack by interceding for us in perfect accordance with the will of God, always in line with what the Father wants for us. Perfect, perpetual prayers. This is a wonderful promise. For Jesus promised four times in John chapter 14 and 15 that we will always receive such requests. And John repeats and explains this promise in 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have towards him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we asked of him. Isn't that awesome? Anything we ask according to the will of God, and what's the will of God for us? Our good and His glory. So we know that whatever we ask according to His will, He hears us and he, we will have the requests that we have asked of Him. What, an in, what a tremendous encouragement 
then that the will of God is being fulfilled in our lives despite our weakness and our inability to know what we should pray for. This is so important. God's will is not frustrated because of the weaknesses of believers. God is not unable to somehow accomplish his will because we failed to pray appropriately. It is fulfilled because the Spirit intercedes for us and invariably receives affirmative answers to his pleas. No wonder all things are working out for our good. The Spirit is effectively praying for us so that the will of God will be accomplished in our lives. And we know that God identifies with and cares about our experiences of suffering, which provides comfort. The groaning of creation and the groaning of believers is more than matched by the groaning of the Holy Spirit on our behalf. I want to leave you with Colossians 3, 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Father, Romans 8, I mean, we couldn't even imagine better news. We couldn't come up with a better gospel. Even if we were all to fantasize about what would be the most wonderful way for everything to work out, we could not come up with such glorious and beautiful promises that you have given to us here in Romans 8. Lord, Romans 8 speaks of an imagination and a creativity far beyond ours. But it also speaks of of a loving kindness and and a goodness that far surpasses human goodness to come up with such things. God, we we just want to honor you and and give you praise to recognize you even a little bit for who you are, that you are the designer of this plan for salvation. And God, we ask now that as your Spirit works in us, your Word would do its work in us, that we would be filled with hope. I pray that we would be overwhelmed with this hope so that it deeply affects us and the way that we live our lives. That we would go from here in hope and we would increase in hope as we meditate on this Word. That we would know that you are working all things for our good and your glory because your Spirit is at work in us. And Lord, that even the trials we go through would be minimized in our mind because they are light momentary afflictions in light of the goodness that you have freely given us in Christ Jesus. Sanctify us in your truth, we pray, for the glory of Jesus. Amen.